You are listening to Studying Pixels, a podcast on game studies and video game culture. I'm Stefan Heinrich Simond, a game studies scholar from Germany. I'm Dan Hughes, a Japanese scholar from Texas. And you can find us every Sunday on studyingpixels.com and wherever you get your podcasts. I think we might have to apologize in advance to everyone who's fluent in Korean out there because we might mess up a lot of names today, Fia. I, you can take the might out of that sentence. I, my, our Korean listeners, I will mess up these names and I apologize ahead of time. Oh man, I'm, maybe I should bring up a sheet on the side to just, you know, keep in mind all the different names because it's, I have cl very clear and strong associations with the characters of Squid Game, which is our topic for today. But I sometimes struggle to remember names in a language that I hadn't, haven't had much contact with before. Yes, I think uh, it took me, I'll admit, maybe three or four episodes before I started putting names to faces in Squid Game. And uh, yeah, it's, it's funny because as much time as I've spent learning Japanese, um, I'm reminded how, how little I know of other languages whenever I hear another one. <laughs> so. Yeah, but Japanese learning is interesting because I had exactly that experience. When I started learning Japanese, I increasingly started to understand Japanese names and the mm -hmm. kanji combinations that are in them, and therefore also have an easier time remembering names. Isn't that funny? Because I, I, yeah, the same thing happened to me, and I think that's why I almost got frustrated that it took me a while to, uh, to remember that the main character in Squid Game is Gihun, and I was trying to remember how to pronounce it because I felt okay, well, I'm listening to it in Korean. I feel like I should be making an effort to learn these names. Yeah, you watched it also in, with, the, with the Korean uh, audio and uh, English subtitles, I assume. I did, yeah. Me too. It's I've, probably the only true way to watch it. I don't, I, I don't actually know how the dub is. I Not know so that good. in Germany, there's, there's, there's a huge dub, dubbing culture in Germany. Like, we dub everything. When you go to the mm. cinema here in Germany, you won't find... Like only for specific times, usually later at night, you find like original uh, audio. Otherwise, you'll always get the dubbed version. And that's truly a shame because I love to watch <laughs> everything in its original language. Even if I don't understand it, I prefer to read the subtitles and just hear the, you know, the entire, the intonation, the mood of the moment, mm. the more spatial, spatial audio that you have when you have just like an authentic recording in the moment. I agree. I think it also, uh, I think it endears you to the characters more when you're hearing the original actor speak. Some, there's something yeah. about the level of disconnection when you hear, I know at least, uh, I didn't watch um, any any great amount of this, of Squid Game in English, but I did see on YouTube uh, videos would pop up of people basically making fun of the English dub. And it is, it reminded me of late 80s anime dubs in English mm. where <laughs> it's, there's some kind of, miscommunication about what's actually being said. Well, I had two fun experiences with that uh, throughout the last week. That is, both of them are completely unconnected to Squid Game, but I want to mention them still because one of them was I was watching uh, Ted Lasso, the second season on mm. Apple TV Plus, which is one of my, it's one of my favorite shows. Absolutely delicious. And I, <laughs> just, for, just for the lols, <laughs> I switched the dub to Japanese. Because oh, I like to listen to to Japanese audio, and man, that was that was ridiculous. That was ridiculous. <laughs> that thing, that show, literally turned into an anime. Like the entire way that that the that the actors were pronouncing, 
I'm, I'm sure they didn't do a bad job, but it just did so not work when yeah. you have characters that have this very, you know, charismatic, essentially British accent, and suddenly <laughs> <laughs> they're like speaking Japanese. It's just too odd. And the second thing, it's something that maybe you can give me some advice on. I started playing Devil May Cry 5, the special edition on PS5, yeah. just yesterday. And I was really torn and switched several times back and forth between Japanese audio and English audio because the thing is, this is it's a Japanese game yeah. for what it's worth. And it's very Japanese in many ways. However, it feels to me like the original audio recording was in English, not in Japanese. Like it feels to me the Japanese feels dubbed. I'm I'm not sure if that's true, but I what I do know is that one, I, I agree that I agree with that feeling. And two, Capcom has this uh, particular way of capturing um, American mannerisms in a kind of parody, <laughs> in, in a parodic way. And so I think of like uh, Resident Evil and Devil May Cry, I think are meant to be played in English because mm. there are takes on American culture in really funny ways. So I think uh, whether or not it was... Japanese originally, I would say play Devil May Cry with the English dub. It's probably going to be more enjoyable. Yeah, that's comforting to hear because yeah. I stuck with English for the time being and I found it a lot more enjoyable mm. just because you can see it's the similar effect that I also had with uh, Ghost of Tsushima, which mm. was not a Japanese game, but set in uh, historic uh, Japan. Yeah. And there it was also the case that it was clearly the Japanese audio was amazing, but the characters, the, the motion, uh, how do you call it? The motion, motion, motion recording, the motion capture. Yeah, yeah, thank you. And the capturing of the mimic, mim uh, the mimics, the characters that was clearly done in English because the Japanese mm. was dubbed. And that's why I switched and played it in English all the way through, because it just seemed for some weird reason more authentic to me than the Japanese track. I did too. And had it been uh, originally recorded in Japanese, I, I would have played it in Japanese. But I agree yeah. with you. There's something more authentic about how, because I always think, how did how did the um, the developer or the writer intend for this to sound? And so I think that the reason that I, even though I, I know next to nothing about the Korean language, the thought I didn't even occur to me when watching Squid Game. Oh, maybe I should turn on the English dub because I thought I don't know. Are you, um, Stefan? Are you are you familiar with um, uh, the director uh, Bong Joon Ho? I. It might be that he's, I just don't um, recall the name, so I don't know. Parasite. There's oh, just mm -hmm. yeah. It's, he's a fantastic Korean director, and those movies have been uh, dubbed all over the place. But I think you're doing yourself a disservice if you don't watch them in Korean. <laughs> Because there's, yeah. it's just the way it's it was envisioned. Yeah, it's probably in the same way that I would not play Death Stranding in Japanese, even though it's Kojima Productions. It's right. a Japanese game technically, but it's so American in many ways with an American <laughs> protagonist. So you want to watch it and uh, want to play it in in English. Absolutely. But um, just a tiny bit of housekeeping before we get started. We were thinking about how to handle spoilers, because when we talk about Squid Game, we're going to talk about a show that's very popular, that many people have seen, and that some people have not yet seen or want to watch still. And maybe they want to hear our thoughts on that show before jumping into it. So what we're going to do is we're going to do our main story uh, just in a couple of minutes, and that will be spoiler-free. So you can rest assured that you can listen to this show without 
hearing any spoilers. And then after the outro of this week's episode, we're going to attach a spoiler part where we take the spoiler gloves off and where we just talk about, you know, the ending and all the twists and turns that we wouldn't ruin for anyone who hasn't yet been able to or hasn't yet come around to watch the show. Especially because uh, I think we both agree this is worth your time uh, to watch it. It's a very good show. It's definitely worth your time. So if you want to... Uh, maybe listen to the show first you can pause it and then you can listen uh, you can watch squid game and then afterwards you can come back and hear our spoiler discussion i'm sure it will be interesting and of course you should keep in mind that uh, studying pixels is a free and independent podcast we rely entirely on your support and that is why we offer you studying pixels plus which is essentially our patreon program so if you support us on patreon you get three wonderful things at once First, you get our sincere gratitude and the good feeling of supporting an independent show. Secondly, you get a lovely sticker that says, I am studying pixels, featuring our particularly cute mascot, Pixel Coon. And thirdly, you get monthly plus episodes. And for this month, we've done something that's very befitting for the now starting fall term all over the world, because... uh, we did an episode on how not to write a term paper. So if you're about to write your first term papers, or if you have been writing term papers and you're wondering what you might have possibly done wrong, then please check out Studying Pixels Plus on studyingpixels.com slash plus, and uh, we'll probably have a bit of advice for you, I would say. Absolutely. I think if (laughs) if I were still a student, I would have liked to have heard this. Yeah, <laughs> me too. <laughs> Should send it to the past, your past selves. Yes. <laughs> well, our main story today is, of course, uh, Squid Game and um, the subject of involuntary play. But first of all, for everyone who's been living under a rock, <laughs> Squid Game, it's a, it's a South Korean survival drama. It's a Netflix production. It's written and directed by, and here we go, Hwang Dong-hyuk. Might be completely off with this, but this is, I'm giving yes, it my apo- best shot. Here. Apologies again, we'll both be doing it. Yeah, we'll be doing yeah. it. <laughs> You'll have lots of fun <laughs> if, you, if you're if you Korean native speaker. <laughs> it was released on September 17th on Netflix and it sails in the wake of, I would say, a lot of different high quality Korean dramas that are published mm. prominently by Netflix. I have the distinct feeling that Netflix has, I've been wondering why why do they push Korean dramas so much recently? And it's not only Korean, it's also like, you know, Indian, like Bollywood films as well. Mm. But um, I have the suspicion, and this is really just a suspicion, that Netflix might have such a firm grip on the Western market, on on the Hollywood market, you know, on the entire European and US American uh, distribution market, that they are wondering, that's how I imagine their meetings to go, like, where could we expand next? Because they need to expand. They need to keep growing. That's how economy works. And uh, obviously, an important market that they are now starting to tap into strongly is the international market with, you know, Korean productions, for example. I imagine that's true, especially with the uh, the incredible popularity of K-pop and, and um, Korean idols, even in, even in the West now. I think it's probably just a, um, a matter of interests are aligning and they're sort of jumping on the chance to expand that market like you were talking about. Yeah, when such a band like Blackpink comes out, <laughs> then it's only a, only a matter of time. Man, I really got addicted to Blackpink, I must say. At the beginning, when when I heard the, it's like K-pop, you know? Yeah, and, yeah. Uh, it's, it's really fun music, I must say. When I heard it at first, I thought like, you know, it's not my thing at all. 
And then I was like taking a walk and I was thinking, maybe I should listen to that album again. And all of a sudden I was like listening to it for weeks. Yeah. Are you are you familiar with the term earworm? Yeah. 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 So that's that's how I feel about a lot of Cape. And not bad at all. I just think it's exactly that experience where you think, maybe I should listen to that again. <laughs> yeah. Ice cream, ice cream. Give me that, give me that ice cream. <laughs> <laughs> Well, Squid Game is, for what it's worth, really popular. And I've done a little bit of research to just point out uh, how popular Squid Game is. And I think the most striking thing, really noteworthy thing about Squid Game is that it is actually the most watched show on Netflix. The most successful uh, Netflix launch of all time. It, it it has reached the place number one. It was, um, I think, at first it was a Bridgerton. Bridgerton, Bridgerton was, um, I think, Bridgerton. Yeah. That was that was n- number one, um, and uh, now n- Squid Game has surpassed it. It, is, it has more than one hundred and eleven million people who watched at least two minutes of uh, of Squid Game within the first four weeks of its launch. So it's the most successful show launch on netflix which is really impressive it is impressive especially since um well and we can get into this but how how interesting that this is so it's okay let me let me put it this way this is a fantastic show and we're talking about Mm. it on the podcast because there's a lot of really interesting um uh there's a lot of really interesting points about games obviously it's called squid game but there are many um, really nuanced and and cool things to talk about, which we'll get into. But it's interesting to me that this seems to be resonating with people um, on a level that other shows maybe haven't. And it's always it's always funny when something like this happens. My first thought, and I don't know about you, but my first thought is, why this one? Why why is it this? Why this one? Yeah, yeah. Why is it so popular? It's it has. I mean, assuming that Netflix made a deliberate effort, deliberate push to get um, such high-profile Korean dramas mm. into its roster of, uh, anyhow, mostly quite excellent shows, Yeah, I think there's something, there's something about Squid Game that makes it stand out. And it is, it's not necessarily its key theme, because Squid Game is basically about uh, people that are in um, financial peril, mm. and they are lured, encouraged, or even coerced into participating in a game, in a series of games that is eventually about life and death. Either you get rich or you die trying, basically. That's, yeah. That's the principle <laughs> behind Squid Game. That's right. And this this is not a new principle at all. We've seen this, especially in the world of video games, so many times. I know, at least at the top of my head, like five Japanese games that have exactly that principle. And even recently, such things like Alice in Borderland, which was mm. also a Netflix production, a Japanese Netflix production, had also a very similar principle. So why does this principle, why is this principle apparently so striking when in the context of Squid Game, when it was in other cases considered to be a little bit more niche. I have I have a theory about why it seems to be resonating with people, and we can we can get into it more, but I think that um so you mentioned that the driving factor behind the people in the story 
going and participating in this life and death game is that they feel trapped by the debt that they have. Mm. They are, and we're talking for most people in the show, there's a, there's a moment where they kind of go over people's debts. And these are in, in us dollars, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars. I think it's, it's like in the, in the level of billions of Korean won, it's a crushing amount of debt. And it gets to the point where I don't know. So I I've watched a lot of shows and engage with a lot of media that are about sort of death games because there's something appealing to them. And in the first episode, I was thinking, you know, I've seen this before. There, I, I don't, I don't understand why this is so, this is so special. But then in the second episode, it completely turns around. Uh, at least it turned me around by saying, these people really don't have a choice because of their debt. It's an, it's yeah. well, all well and good to say that they're all in debt and then watch them participate in this game. But what Squid Game does is it shows them in debt, takes them into the game, then takes them out and shows them their debt, shows us their debt again and how crushing that uh, lifestyle is. And I think that that is something for anyone who's ever been in debt or who is worried about creditors or you know, money that they owe to the bank, to a company, to whoever. Uh, it, it's a, I, I can feel my heart sinking right now thinking about it. It's so terrifying. Yeah. <laughs> I, I feel exactly like you do as well, because there are obviously such popular formats like Saw, which probably mm. popularized the idea of these, you know, death games mm -hmm. um, quite a lot. But in most of these cases, and that includes many of the gaming Examples such as, you know, the um, Virtuous Last Reward, the Zero mm. Escape games, um, Danganronpa and Danganronpa, so on. Danganronpa, yeah. These are, these are often narratives where the characters really do not have a choice at all, where they're trapped basically against their will and there's no way that they can quit. There's no quitting the game. Quitting is essentially dying. Yeah. In Squid Game, this is different because, as you mentioned, um, you can take part in this game and if the majority of players agrees and this is like hundreds of players as at the beginning then you can leave the game this is not a spoiler it's explained directly in the first episode you can mm. leave however if you do leave and then you get confronted with the actual situation of your life that second episode that you mentioned which takes place mostly outside of the game and in the daily life of characters is so dreary uh, that it really got under my skin. Do you remember the title of that episode? Hell. Hell. It's called Hell. Yeah. 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 Because the thing is that um, in South Korea, the economic situation and the class disparity in South Korea is really stunning. I just looked it up a little bit and there's actually a full-on Wikipedia article just on class disparity in South Korea. Yeah. And I'm going to quote a sentence from it, just from the Wikipedia. I know this is not proper research, but uh, <laughs> still interesting fact. Quote, according to data during the 2010s, low-income earners make up to 40% of South Korea's entire labor force. Conversely, the highest-income earners make up only 1% to 1.3% of the labor force. End quote. So basically, we've got, you know... 40% of the Korean population at the moment being in a pretty dire financial peril. And this is, I think, a key factor for why this show is so meaningful in the context of South Korea. Yes, and I, I think that 
the the depiction of poverty um, in the first few episodes where we see um, eventually we get kind of a window into all of the characters' lives and what they're dealing with in that second episode we talked about. But our our point of view character, um, Gi-hun, who's the main character of the story, we see that um, he, he is petulant and childish and he's got a lot of issues on his own. But the more that you learn about him, the more you think, I don't know that this man has a choice other than to kind of be desperate and to engage with uh, these gangsters who are loaning him money, these loan sharks, you know, and he's, he's got a kid to take care of. And there's even a moment when um, he's sort of a deadbeat dad, but the, his ex-wife and her husband, they talk about how they also have issues <laughs> with money. And so yeah. even the people who seem to be doing okay are worried all the time, which I think is a very relatable problem, um, particularly in the U.S. I'm not so sure about Germany. Maybe you yeah, can speak well. to that, but yeah. So yeah. I, I think that the hook of this show is very much um, how, how terrifying it can be to live in that constant state of uh, just desperation. It is, of course, it has a tremendous impact on people if they live in the constant fear of losing their class status. It's not to be mm -hmm. underestimated how serious this is and how it affects everyday life and how it affects also your self in the sense that um, Gihun, is that, that's the right name, right? Gihun? Yes. The, the I, well, yeah, the, the main character. <laughs> yeah, Gihun. Yep. Yeah, we're only going to talk about him because we can't pronounce the other names. Um, <laughs> Gihun, he's... Um, as you said, he's a he's a he doesn't really have many other choices, and he perfectly illustrates how you can be um, a good person at heart. Because it's no surprise that the protagonist is a, a very a character that can win your sympathy very easily as a as mm. as a, a recipient in this case. But um, this this peril of debt, it just is like an, it's an endless whirlpool it's a downward spiral because you are in debt you are in financial problems so you don't have any re any uh, likely outlook that this will change by just working hard so what you what they do yeah. is you go ahead and you gamble because you think if i bet on some horses and maybe i can change my luck maybe i can you know change things around turn the tables and then you lose and then you have even more debts even more problems so that eventually the game in which you are at risk of dying becomes quite appealing because if you think about it, in our last episode we spoke about Rosé Calois and the different categories of play. Yes. We spoke about, and we spoke about the fact that um, competitive games, Aegon, but also games of chance, Alea, both of these uh, games are strongly featured in Squid Game, they create a form of artificial equality within the circle of play. Um, and this is this is referenced several times in Squid Game. The idea that all players that participate in this shall be equal, and this principle mustn't be violated. They shall be equal. They shall have equal chances to win. Obviously, that's not fully the case because they're people of various different ages, genders, and so on. But um, still, you have a certain sense of equality that everyone has a chance to win an enormous amount of money. That basically, if you win this, if you win this much money. I think it's 45 billion won or something. Yes. Then you're basically done. This is this is it. You're, you're fine for the rest of your life. You don't have to worry about anything anymore. 
And everyone has a legitimate chance to win that. And that is what distinguishes the game from the downward spiral of the economic class disparity in South Korea. Yes, and it it is insidious in a sense because I think that the trick of really good death game shows or media is um, you may not even you may not even notice that it's happening, but you at some point in these shows uh, switch from this is horrific to okay now we're in the game and I'm rooting for this person. You stop thinking about the the context of it and you just think about the circle, the circle of the game and the rules and how you want the character that you're rooting for to win. And I think that's kind of the bigger trick of Squid Game is that even when you codify something, it's still not really fair. And I think that uh, the, the best early um, uh, example of this is... You mentioned up top playing involuntarily, and you also mentioned that they're given a choice. If they all vote to leave, they can leave. The problem with that, though, the majority is that when the majority votes, yes, if yeah. the majority votes, then they all leave. The problem with that, though, is that when they do leave, you kind of get the feeling that they don't have a choice in the real world. So the question then becomes: Okay, they can all. If the majority votes to leave, we could consider that a choice. But given that the outside world is a slow death and the game maybe is an instant death or, you know, instant riches, do they really have a choice to begin with? Yeah. So basically the deal is you can um, go outside. You can leave anytime if you want to or if the majority agrees. Individual Mm -hmm. players can't leave, but if the majority agrees, then, then you can leave. We stop the games. It's no problem. You can also return at any point. Um, And then you can go into the outside world and you can see how you lose your family, how your parents are in in poverty and an emaciated condition. However, you lose your business, you lose your house. You can basically go through that as you described it, slow death. Or you can come back anytime if you want to and you can play this game with us and you might be either rich or dead. That's it. You know, it's like a clear (laughs) polarity that just very poignantly... uh, very poignantly illustrates the the issue with uh, with with the Korean class disparity. I think that's very interesting. And man, I think Johan Heusinger, the a Dutch cultural historian, we have mentioned him on our last show on, on Roger Kawa. He would have a huge problem with that because mm. his initial idea of play excluded any kind of material profit. So mm. for Heusinger, Heusinger was so strict that gambling was uh, not play for him. If you gamble, you're not playing because then you're trying to, you know, gain some kind of material benefit. For Roger Calois, it, that was different. But for Heusinger, in several ways, this is not, in actuality, a game. The people involved in this show are not playing because, first of all, it's about a lot of money. So that means it's similar maybe to how... If we want to go to a more realistic, more down-to-earth example, how a football player, a professional football player, earns so much money and earns the mm-hmm. livelihood. So are they really playing or are they working when they're on the pitch? You know, it's kind right. of it, it, it looks like playing because it takes place in the rules in the rule structure of play and the magic circle of play, which is a football field and an ongoing game, but they're really working for for their family, for the livelihood. And 
then you also have the situation that if you lose, you have very severe consequences in that, in this case, you die. And yeah. th that means it's no longer a voluntary free activity that is outside of ordinary life. So you could say that one thing that I think is so interesting about Squid Game, but all of these, uh, all of these survival game dramas, mm. is that they focus a lot on the fear that we might have as human beings of taking part in some kind of weird game in which we are not actually playing. I mean, quintessentially yeah. saw, I want to play a game. <laughs> you know? Yeah. <laughs> that, that was not a sample that I cut in. That was just from my real voice. <laughs> but Jigsaw is of, not here, everyone. <laughs> 15 years of smoking did that to me. <laughs> but, but yeah, it's like uh, the Jigsaw killer in Saw is playing because, you know, he is, but the people that are actually involved and that are in danger are not playing. And in a similar way, this happens in Squid Game as well. They are called players, but they are not playing at all, even though they're giving the face of being players and it follows a rule structure, but they're not playing. They're fighting for their lives, really. Right. And there, I think that the, the Saw comparison, particularly the first film, um, is an apt one in this case, because if you remember in that first movie, a big part of that, uh, that game, the first game in Saw, is that it's a mystery and you're trying to figure out who would be doing something like this? What is their motivation? Um, and that's very similar in Squid Game, where there's an entire plot where um, a police officer, a detective, is giving the audience sort of insight into the inner workings of this game and trying to figure out who would be doing this. And I think that, like in Saw, um, a big part of that movie is that the Jigsaw Killer observes. He always watches the game. Mm. And there is something insidious about not only participating in a game that we are maybe involuntarily participating in, but the idea that it's all for the enjoyment of some anonymous observer is very spooky. This aspect of being anonymous, I think, plays a big role in, in all of these narratives, because just like the Jigsaw Killer is wearing a mask, and just like um, the, I think... Um, I don't want to give it, I don't want to spoil anything, but like the, let's say, um, the seeming antagonist of Virtue's Last Reward, for example, is like just a hologram of a rabbit, if I recall correctly. Mm. Uh, in Ronpa, it's Monokuma, it's a, the image of a bear uh, that is yes. obviously not completely autonomous. Um, <laughs> so uh, hiding the true identity of the people that are orchestrating the games. In Squid Game, it goes so far that the entire, let's say, staff members, everyone, except for the players, is always and at all times wearing masks and suits. They're completely covered and entirely dehumanized. So interestingly enough, the players, the players are the ones that are dehumanized because they are taking part in a game in which they do not actually play, so to speak, but they are mm -hmm. more like, you know, the figures that are yes. being played with. And... Uh, on the other hand, everyone who's involved in, you know, like organizing these games conceals their identity and is therefore dehumanized as well. That means you are in a very, in a fiction that feels super dystopian because you don't know yes. the identity of any of these people. It feels like talking to robots. They have this robotic voice that come out of, the, through their masks and you think like, wow. I, um, I watched a, uh, on YouTube, there was a, um, an interview with the director, the 
two lead actors and the scene designer, I believe. Mm. Um, and the scene designer was talking about how she specifically made the um, the workers, the the masked people who run the game. She made their she wanted them to look like ants, just mm. faceless and um, going about their business. They have no particular personality, and even in the uh, it comes through in the show clear very well because even the the people in the masks don't know who each other are they're all completely anonymous even to one another they're just cogs in this machine more or less yeah they are numbered just like the players are numbered there's mm. nothing like uh, hanging out um, for dinner after work or something like that <laughs> <laughs> and they have quite the, maybe this quite the dinner table conversation if that yeah. were the case <laughs> <laughs> and what did you think of today's deaths <laughs> <laughs> But the, the thing is that it also has a very uh, playful association for me because these uh, workers, these ant workers, they have symbols on their masks, symbols that represent a squid game in its entirety. It's, uh, I think if I figured this out correctly, then the order of hierarchy is that the circles are at the bottom. They are the low-level workers. And then there are, I think, triangles and squares. I don't know which is... Triangles are the soldiers. So they're they're the people who um, the actually... Yeah, they're the people mm. who actually put people to death. And the squares are the managers who run everything. Okay, okay, yeah. Uh, that makes perfect sense. And I was wondering, if if they would have added a circle, then PlayStation would have sued them. <laughs> an X, you mean? <laughs> Sorry, an X, yes, an yeah. X. Yeah, an I had X. the same thought the entire time. Especially when... Um, when the players get the card that invites them with the phone number, which you found out is real, right? The yeah, phone number the, <laughs> the players at the beginning of the show, they, they get like a, a business card that uh, invites them to participate in the show. And that business card is, first of all, it has a real phone number on it. Uh, and that the owner of that phone number in South Korea uh, has received up to 4,000 calls a day by people who actually want to participate in squid in the squid game, you know? And people who actually <laughs> oh, call no. this number. Yeah. 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 <laughs> give like their name and their date of birth and being like, I want to be in. Um, well, oh, wow. Netflix isn't currently editing the show. It's still in, I think. When I watched it like this week, then the number was still in, but they're going to release, they're going to update the, the, the video files, I think, to, yeah. <laughs> to get rid of that number. And it has well, the PlayStation I, symbols on top. Yeah, it does. It's I I was cracking up thinking that they were all being invited. I don't know if you remember this show. There was a there was a reality show called The Tester, where it was PlayStation said, "Come and do a reality show, and you'll get to be a, a QA uh, tester on video oh, games." I, I, I vaguely remember that. Yeah, it was it was all kind. We maybe we do an episode on that, <laughs> but it was all. Uh, uh, it just reminded me of the lo the PlayStation logo almost to a T. So yes, I was thinking that the entire time too. Yeah, that would have. That was, they were very close to causing some legal issues there. I yeah, think they were probably I think like, so. maybe they even had a role figured out for what people would look like that have like an X mask. And they were like, guy, maybe we should not, yeah. maybe we should not do it. <laughs> they saw it like printed on the business card and were like, damn, what does I it remind I, me of? Yeah, I think that's actually a very famous symbol now that I see it. <laughs> <laughs> well, let me hit you with two more things for that illustrate how popular Squid Game actually is. So mm. there's a character in the show, um, the actress is called Jung Ho Hyung, and uh, she plays like a seemingly apathetic thief, I'm going to say. Mm. And she saw an increase of her social media following. She was 
Like she had like 40,000 people who followed her on social media. Sorry, excuse me, 400,000 who followed her on social media. So she was already a very famous South Korean actress. But within three weeks after the release of Squid Game, that number jumped to 13 million. That just Unbelievable. Yeah, that just illustrates how these, how these actors also that participated in Squid Game that are, by the way, in my mind, all absolutely amazing. Yes. How they, how they blew up and what this means, you know, for their career as well. And the most... On, on that, I, uh, I have an interesting piece of truth. From that uh, video that I watched, mm. they were talking about um, the actor uh, who plays um, Ali, Abdul Ali, um, Anupam Tripathi. Um, excuse me again if I didn't pronounce that correctly, but I, uh, I really love that character and Mm. it turns out that they, he was, that character was written, um, to be a, you know, an, an immigrant who was coming to Korea to do some work. Um, and it turns out that the actor came to South Korea to act and he speaks Korean and they were, they were worried about casting somebody for that role. And he just sort of showed up and was perfect for it. And I, yeah. I love that story where he just walked in and it was almost as if it was written for him. Yeah, it's almost as if he plays himself to a certain degree. Yeah. And then the last piece of trivia that illustrates, I think very poignantly so, how popular Squid Game actually is, is that Netflix might actually get sued by a company called SK Broadband. That's SK for South Korea. Because uh, this is a this is a South Korean broadband company, so they organize such things like you know uh, data traffic in uh, in South Korea, and they are currently suing Netflix for causing such an enormous amount of data usage in <laughs> South Korea. They demand that Netflix pay them a certain a certain uh, amount of money in order to compensate for the extra work for them having to reorganize their infrastructure. Because Netflix is, after YouTube, the second biggest source of data consumption in in South Korea. Netflix argues against this at the moment. They are arguing, and I think this is, is to a certain degree a good point of saying, we created a lot of jobs in South Korea, and Mm. we see like a general increase um, for, you know, a lot of people's wealth because uh, we made this show. Um, But so far, it doesn't look all too good for Netflix, because the thing is that they are already paying... Um, I think um, Comcast in the US for a very similar reason, right? Because they need to, they need so much bandwidth oh. that that they're paying Comcast in order to compensate for that. And um, in a, a court ruling, in a previous court ruling, um, the court ruled against Netflix and said, "quote SK is seen as providing a service provided at a cost, and it is reasonable for Netflix to be obligated." to provide something in return for the service, end quote. This was an article by Reuters. Obviously, we're going to link all articles that we quote in the show notes. But yeah, it might be that Netflix has, you know, that Squid Game has blown up to such a degree that Netflix might have to pay the South Korean broadcast company in order to compensate for the huge data usage. That's, uh, that's I think, speaks to the power of the show. Um, yeah. That it's... <laughs> It's, it's causing broadband outages in South Korea. It is wow. everywhere at the moment. Squid Game is everywhere at the moment. And I find that very interesting because, as we just illustrated, I hope to a sufficient degree, um, Squid Game raises interesting questions about what it means to play, about what games are, and about 
how they relate to uh, real life experiences, especially when these are plagued by, you know, economic insecurities and, and financial debt and what function games might have in that context. Shall we move ahead and do some side quests? Because we're going to have, we, we, we'll do a spoiler part at the end of this show. So stay tuned for that. And in the meantime, you know, we can check out what else has happened in the world. Yes, so stay tuned if you want the show spoiled or if you want to hear our juicy thoughts about all the fun stuff that happens in Squid Game. In our side quests, dear listeners, as you know, we are scavenging throughout the entire internet to find out all kinds of interesting stories and we bring our own video game anecdotes and everything really that we want to talk about that didn't have any space in the main story. Today we've got three interesting items. Um, the first one is the announcement of the Nintendo Switch Online Extension Pack, or an update thereof, because we did report already on the last Nintendo Direct, which announced the Nintendo Switch Online Extension Pack. So this is an extension to the existing service of Nintendo Switch Online, which allows you to play online to, I think, I'm not sure whether it's cloud save as well, but there's some, you know, like, access to NES and SNES games and so on that actually I have mm -hmm. this Nintendo Online subscription as well. And this extension pack adds a selection of Nintendo 64 and Sega Genesis games as well as free access to a pretty big Animal Crossing DLC. It's called Happy Home Paradise. The pricing, however, did cause some controversy because the standard Nintendo Switch Online subscription costs you $20 a year which is significantly cheaper than services such as, you know, PlayStation Plus and the Xbox Game Pass, but it also gives you significantly less. However, the extension pack costs a whooping $50 per year. So that is a $30 price upgrade. There is the option of subscribing to a family, uh, family membership, which allows you to use the Nintendo Switch Online uh, extension pack for up to eight accounts on the same Switch. That would be $80 a year, which... It can be a little bit cheaper if you split it amongst family members. But honestly, if you get it for your children, they're not going to give you like 10 bucks a month. <laughs> they're not kicking up. No. Yeah. <laughs> but in all fairness, I must say that the Animal Crossing DLC in itself costs $25 already. So I guess that to a certain degree might justify the price in the first year. But still, I feel like this is a pretty whooping a price upgrade from $20, $20 I could understand because it offers you less than than all the other subscription services mm. in the market. But 50 for a couple of N64 and Sega Genesis games? Well, it, it, that, that does just kind of rub me the wrong way. Um, and you're right, because the PlayStation and Xbox equivalents, they are more, but they, you get so much more with those subscriptions. Particularly, I mean, I, I know we're both big Sony fans, but uh, Xbox, the Game Pass, is an incredible deal for the money that you get. The access to games that you have on the Game Pass is, is pretty incredible. And then PlayStation Plus, you get different games every month. So it does kind of feel that it, the, the spike in price doesn't seem to, <laughs> to match up with what we're actually getting. Yeah, and they shouldn't. I think this is a very Nintendo-ish decision, as in it doesn't make sense in so many ways. 
Mm. including that Animal Crossing DLC, is surely nice and you can say, okay, it justifies the price somewhat. However, not everyone has Animal Crossing. Not everyone likes Animal Crossing or plays it. Why include it in that subscription? Make it cheaper overall and leave that DLC out of it. Not everyone needs that DLC. I think that would have made a lot more sense and caused a lot less controversy. I think they just shot themselves in the foot there. Well, and I can think too, even for people on the flip side of that, like my girlfriend loved Animal Crossing and I could see her being coaxed back into playing it for a DLC, but I don't, she wouldn't want to buy the Nintendo subscription. So, you know, for people who are diehard fans of Animal Crossing, I think it doesn't work either way for me. (laughs) It just seems backwards. But again, like you say, that's very quintessentially Nintendo. The decisions that they make to try to parse them, you'd need tools finer than you know we have available to humanity right now <laughs> yeah it's beyond beyond the domain of the comprehensible it's right. metaphysics literally <laughs> <laughs> well we're gonna see how the nintendo switch online extension pack actually plays out i must say a part of me really hopes that they fall flat on their face with this and that uh, not enough people subscribe and that soon they will realize that they might have to lower the price yeah um but we'll see we'll keep you posted on that We've got more news on in the direction of Nintendo, right? Yes, that's a perfect segue into um, more more controversy around Nintendo. Um, so the article that that I've brought is one that that you brought to my attention, Stefan. It's it's more of an uh, uh, like an opinion piece um, a, by a rant, I might say. Oh yeah, yeah. It's putting it lightly a little bit by I believe um, I believe it's pronounced Kylie Holtner or Kaylee Holtner. Um, uh, and it's in response, it's an essay that's in response to, uh, at first a Kotaku article that was talking about, um, ROM hacking and piracy, but more so the backlash that that article got, because the backlash that it got was very strange. And, um, Kylie here basically discusses that, first of all, the Kotaku article was saying that, uh, more or less, that there was a ROM hack of Metroid Dread that came out that was used to um, basically up the features of it, um, give it a higher frame rate, basically actually similar to what we were talking about last week where we wish Bayonetta 3 were coming to the PlayStation because we think that game deserves higher uh, quality um, mechanical parts to make it work better. Um, People feel that way about Nintendo games too. Um, There's huge fans of the Metroid series, of course, and they say, well, I love Metroid and and the Switch is okay, but I'd rather play it in this higher fidelity. And so the Kotaku article was more or less advocating for the the moral good of that, saying that um, it's okay for people to do that if they want to play it the way that they want. And they were kind of talking more generally about, too, how Piracy is not always a bad thing because sometimes things are put behind paywalls, they're lost to the void. We're kind of seeing that with Nintendo Online right now where N64 games are only available through this service that makes no sense, like we just discussed. And so uh, Twitter backlash happened, basically wanting to, uh, quote, cancel Kotaku for this take. And it was a very strange backlash because it was was people going to bat for Nintendo saying things like, um, Kylie quotes this, uh, one tweet, older games I can understand, 
but encouraging the torrenting slash pirating of a game one day after its release? For fuck's sake, one commenter wrote underneath the article itself. Another one, I support archival and even deeper rights for the end user of software than currently exist, but this, this feels wrong. And it's, she points out that this is just a strange position to take. When Nintendo, the last thing they need are additional defenders. <laughs> they have, they're an incredibly litigious company. They go after, I mean, it was a huge story a few years ago, the amount of uh, money that they put into going after people, um, taking their intellectual property and using it for their own ends. You can't show clips of Nintendo products on YouTube or you'll get copyright striked. Um, they are they are so protective in an aggressive way about their their material that this essay, this rant, like you were saying, is basically saying, why why the hell would you go to bat for Nintendo when the people who are doing this, making these ROM hacks or uh, engaging in piracy to play these games that they may not be able to play otherwise, they're not harming anything. And in fact, intellectual property may be a harm in and of itself. So there's a lot to unpack there. Generally speaking, I, I don't know that I'm as angry as this author, but as you know, I'm a big archivist for video games. And I, she goes as far to say that it is a moral good to pirate games. I don't know that I'm that, I'm not going to make a moral judgment maybe, but I do think to me, it makes sense if there's no other way to access these things. I, I mean, what else are you going to do? Well, I think that is certainly a very fair point. I, I do think they have two extremely obvious and fair points there. One is Nintendo is indeed responsible for shutting down a lot of the ROM and cracking and emulating scene. I remember that back in the day when I'm not going to I'm not going to confess to any illegal activities here when some people were emulating ROMs on their computers and were playing, you know, like Nintendo games mm. that Nintendo went after these platforms and effectively managed to uh, get a lot of them completely ruined and yep. their their owners and their organizers into deep deep trouble that they're not going to get out anytime soon. So that is a that is a big problem, and I do think that the, that is very legitimate and probably the least controversial thing to say that um, when games are not available by any other means or for the purpose of archiving, that playing them on ROMs and emulators, that that should be something where uh, where the uh, intellectual property should not be handled as strictly. But mm. what I do find at the same time, and that's what, why this polarity of the discourse is a bit baffling to me. I do think there is also a legitimate problem in saying, uh, like, if like if someone makes Metroid Dread and works on Metroid Dread, uh, and then they release the game, and then it's pirated, while being good for the players at first, because, of course, they can get the game for free, and they can play it on PC with higher fidel fidelity, it can be a problem that it decreases the sales and the financial yeah. success. And as a company such as Nintendo operates exactly according to the idea of having not only because they want to, but because they're just a player in the economic market, they need to make money. And so they say, okay, Metroid Dread clearly didn't sell as well as we wanted it to. It, 
it, it did definitely make the cut, I would assume. You know, they, they will surely sell enough copies, but not as much as we anticipated. So maybe we're not going to do a Metroid Dread 2 or something. So eventually it also harms players as well, right? That That is my sticking point exactly, Stefan, because I I completely agree that if games aren't available in any other way, then that's where I would say, what else are you going to do, right? But I think the problem which this this author is so flip about is exactly what you just said, which is if if the numbers don't match up with a game, uh, if the sales numbers don't match up with a game, Nintendo looks at that and says there's no interest in that series. So all of the people who worked on that game, who have a passion for it, you're not going to be working on a on a sequel. You're not going to be people. People aren't interested in Metroid. And there's a a part in this um, essay that I I deeply disagree with because I feel like it's maybe misguided a little bit. Where uh, they say people are upset because Nintendo hasn't prioritized their subsidiary studios, who typically make Metroid games for like 20 years, and this is the first Metroid title in a while. See also Bayonetta. And they view this article and the knowledge it contains of other people's behavior as some kind of existential threat. To them, to Metroid, to Nintendo, it's not really all that clear. And it's written in a way that's sort of like, she's baffled by this. But Mm -hmm. I think that at the heart of what those people on Twitter are maybe getting at, I don't necessarily agree with going to bat for a company that has all of their lawyers intact. However... I think the heart of what those people are saying is exactly what you just said, which is if you don't show support for this series, it will go away. And the only support we have is monetary in this system we all live in. So that frustrates me with newer games. We've seen it just one time too many that studios were, you know, closed, that people had to leave to different companies, that series and franchises were ended because it didn't meet the financial expectations of the publisher. And mm. this is, the for me, the biggest risk and the reason why I would say that pirating a game, especially in the time frame when it is supposed to reach its peak sale numbers, is maybe not the best thing to do. I would say there, there is an argument to be made from a moral standpoint. Um, of course, you can make a structural argument against capitalism itself and you can make an individual argument about people who may be not be able to afford it or might, sure. might not be able to get a Switch. That's all fair and good. But in general, I would say um, it's not a good idea. Like if you have the possibility and if you have the money, then I would say it makes more sense to purchase the game, especially when it's something that you truly care about. And if you don't care about it that much, then it might be a good idea to just, you know, just hang in there a little bit, wait a little bit. I think if then I would not say that pirating it three years down the line is good, but at least it's something that's way less controversial than pirating it directly on or after yeah. release directly. Yeah. I think uh, that's what I'll end with is that um, this essay was written, I think from the perspective that uh, pirating a game on day one has no impact um, mm. as if it were, as if you were doing it three years down the line with less impact, but that's just not true. So I, I think we should be accurate in what we're saying that if, 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 if a game is released on October 15th and nobody buys it, that's a problem <laughs> for that studio. That is a problem. And it's yeah. not the danger is not that Nintendo is going to be financially ruined. Mm-hmm. They're going to be fine even if 20 people just purchase Metroid Dread. They're going to be perfectly fine because they've got so much business going for them. They're incredibly rich, yeah. wealthy company. 
But the thing is that, yes, they will kill any kind of series of franchise if too many people pirate it and they realize, okay, um, that's just not worth our time. That's not worth our money. That's not a worthwhile investment. So, yeah, that's just how the business works. Yep. Number three, we promised you, dear listeners out there, that we would get into Kina, Bridge of Spirits, a tiny bit more because last week we only did like a two-minute brief overview and I've actually finished the game. Yay! Yay! Which was a true achievement because I can tell you, I mean, first of all, Kina, Bridge of Spirits is a very beautiful game. I mentioned mm. last week already it has this beautiful Pixar art style. It's very cutesy because something that I haven't mentioned last week, but that's a crucial feature, is that you've got these tiny rot creatures, black, mm. puffy creatures that accompany you everywhere. They're a little bit like Pikmin because, oh, you, you know, okay. you, you collect them throughout the game and you use them a little bit in puzzle sequences. They can carry things here and there. They can, you know, put up statues that have been thrown over to restore them, which gives you a little bit of extra points for leveling up. And you can use them in fights to, for example, hold down an enemy for a while and attack them or charge your bow with an extra, you know, like uh, rot charged spirit arrow or something, you know, <laughs> to make like extra damage. So um, this is a really beautiful mechanic. As you explore this world, you collect tiny rot creatures and they accompany you throughout. You can even purchase tiny cute hats for them. That's, <laughs> a, I didn't. I was really baffled by that, but there's like a, a, currency, a currency, like blue crystal currency in this game. No microtransactions, but you, only in-game currency. Um, thousands and thousands of blue crystals that are only used to purchase cute hats with no, no gameplay benefit. And you can barely see them because these creatures are super tiny. They're, you know, like Pikmin when they run around you. Yeah. But you can give them a tiny, like, you know, a tiny eggshell that they can put on their hat, on their head or something. Uh, there's, something ni- uh, there's something nice about knowing that it's there, even if you're not seeing it up, up close and personal. Yeah, it's really yeah. cute. They're really, really well made. And um, I also must say I do love the general setup and attitude of that game because Kina, she's a spirit guide. And that world that you that you're traveling, which is very strongly inspired by Japan and by Bali, mm-hmm. um, and very true to you know the cultures that it is inspired by, and in, you know um, integrating the existence of spirits into the world and into the daily proceedings, but also, for example, by including something like a Balinese um, music ensemble that composed the the music and contributed significantly. So beautiful. It makes the entire world seem so vibrant, mm. even though it is empty, because it's basically sort of a post-apocalyptic, small post-apocalyptic world. And your task as a spirit guide is to um, accompany spirits that have faced kind of trauma and are unwilling to let go, to accompany them to the beyond. Beautiful. That's very sweet. Yeah. It's very sweet. It's very heartwarming. It's very well performed. Great acting, great voice acting that we can see in in Kina. Mm. And the interesting thing is that um, these a very a genuinely heartfelt story with a, a thick blanket of cuteness <laughs> contains one of the hardest battles that I've ever played in a video game. <laughs> Now this is a um, uh, 
the combat style is is sort of souls like, isn't it? Yeah, you yeah. enter when you you enter a certain area, and then these enemy enemies they they manifest. Um, they've all got certain. You have to employ certain strategies, mm. and um, the thing is that uh, with the difficulty, it's a little bit it's a little bit of a of an issue, I would say, with Kina, because the thing is that on normal and easy difficulty, it is truly pretty easy. Mm. You can get through the game very comfortably, I would say. But if you go to the hard difficulty, which I did, it is you need to be really persistent. It literally feels like playing a Bloodborne or a, a From <laughs> Software game. You need to be exact with your timing. You need to learn the boss's moves, and they are relentless. They are relentless mm. in the way they attack and tear down your health bar so quickly. One mistake, and you're basically almost done. Which is exacerbated by the fact that in each arena when you fight, your health doesn't restore automatically or something. And you also have no items to restore it. There mm. are these blue plants, and sometimes there's one, and if you're lucky, there are two plants. And these two plants, they will restore your health. But you can only do it twice, because if these plants are used up, then that's it. You have no way to heal. Interesting. So it's really, actually, it's very punishing. And I must say, I fought my way through this game with pride. <laughs> and uh, I tried really hard. It was quite a struggle, I must say. Even though I have Platinum Bloodborne and I'm quite accustomed to, to tough games. But at the end of Kena Bridge of Spirits, that boss fight at the very end was so difficult that I turned down the difficulty level at the very end because I just thought, that's it. I can't, I can't fight. Like, the game's not very long and I don't want to spend the, the next 10 hours just trying to get past this, this final boss. See, I don't, I don't think that there's anything wrong with that, especially if we've talked before about how uh, grinding through something can spoil the experience. Um, and if you're, if you're enjoying the beautiful world that you just described to me with this lovely character and this great mix of Japanese and Polynesian culture, and you run the risk of uh, tarnishing all of that because you don't, ha you know, it, there's such a difficult boss at the end of it. I, I, yeah, go to normal or easy difficulty. Just finish out the story. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Yeah. Just there's nothing to keep your enjoyment, right? Yeah. 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 Uh, for the same reason, I'm also not going to platinum that game because when you play yeah. through it, then it unlocks a, an extra master difficulty uh, set. Oh. <laughs> and I just thought, no. I'm not going to do that. That's just that's just pure torture. That's just if you say um, th that's only for people who have played through Dark Souls with uh, with a set of bananas or something, you know, <laughs> or, you know, as a Dark controller. Souls. You mean? Yeah, yeah. You, you yeah. know these people that do like with, yeah. with bananas or with or potatoes. A pizza. Yeah, I've or seen pizza those. Or yeah. with a just dance mat or something yeah. like that. Lunatics, we call them. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> If you've done that and you thought, well, that was not really a challenge for me, then I would say Kina, the, the master difficulty, that's, that's your thing then. But I, I, don't, <laughs> I feel like at a certain point, it also becomes weird because of this, you know, I don't have a problem with the fights being tough. I actually enjoyed that because for me, I always like it when I, when I come into an enemy encounter and I know it matters. That's yeah. why I love From Software games so much. That's why I love Kina Bridge of Spirits as well. But if it reaches a certain point where you need so many attempts to just get like past a boss in a game that has this kind of cutesy spirit guide heartfelt setting, it's not 
it's not like a, 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 um, a Bloodborne style uh, <laughs> horror, psychological horror fiction or something. Right. It just falls apart a little bit. And I wish that they had lo- done a little bit more fine tuning on that front. Just as I wish they had a little bit more fine tuning when it comes to such things like the frame rate. Mm. It's a very minor issue, but noticeable that the cutscenes run in a different frame rate than the actual gameplay. I, I play in with like 60 frames per second, and then a cutscene comes on, which are these beautiful movies that are very well done, very beautiful short films, basically. Yeah. And they are in 30 frames, and you can just see that it, like everything feels stuttery a little bit. I think that would have been possible to, to improve upon. Mm. Still, it is a $40 game. I was very surprised and happy about that because usually we know that PS5 games, when they come out, are actually $70. $70. I just checked a couple of days ago that Deathloop, for example, is still at $70. $70. Kina is only $40. So this is actually, um, I think, uh, a very good value for money that you're going to get with with Kina Bridge of Spirits. And it is, I think, especially worth it to play and to support because Ember Lab, that studio, that is their first game. They are not a super experienced development studio. They're good experienced when it comes to animation and character Mm. design. And you can see that in the game, but they're not essentially like a a game developer studio. And I think they've done great work with Kina Bridge of Spirits. And if they keep that up and if they ride the wave of success now, then I'm very much looking forward to what they're going to do next. Well, I think that's a, that's a nice, um, a nice endorsement and a good coda to what we were talking about before, where Sounds like they're doing something really interesting, really beautiful. So show them your support. Yeah, go ahead. It's fun. And thank you so very much for listening to this show. If you want to support us as well, and not just Keen Bridge of Spirits, uh, then you can get Studying Pixels Plus. You can go ahead and visit us on studyingpixels.com. It would also be absolutely helpful if you left us a review on Apple Podcasts or if you have a moment to just share this show on social media or even off the internet, off the grid, with your friends and family and just tell them about it. You can submit your thoughts and questions to podcast at studyingpixels.com. And after this outro now, we're going to go ahead and we're going to dive into some spoilers on Squid Game. So all of you that want to stick around, stay tuned for that. And uh, all of you who still want to watch it and don't want to hear any spoilers, We're going to talk again next week. And here we are. We're back for a little bit of spoilery talk on Squid Game. So, dear listeners out there, if you still want to watch the show, if you want to avoid spoilers, then now is the perfect opportunity to stop this show because we're going to take off the spoiler gloves now. And we're going to go ahead and talk about all the things that intrigued us about Squid Game that we wouldn't want to mention in our main story. Yes, and I feel that there is a there's a lot to go over. Um, a lot of really interesting stuff in this in this show, and uh, we've already said that we both we both really enjoyed it. Yeah. Um, do you have Do you have something that stuck out to you as being uh, what was I guess what was your standout? Um, moment or theme or what what struck you as really uh, intriguing about Squid Game in a well, spoilery I mean, way? In a spoilery way, I find it 
most intriguing how the different characters develop throughout the game because it's very clear from the very beginning that there can only be one winner. Mm. Yet they still form teams and they bond amongst one another. There are there are characters that it purposefully do not do this, but especially the protagonist does. He does form bonds and he kind of refuses to bend to this idea of competing with everyone. Instead, he wants to support others. And there are these kind of faint moments where players help each other out during games until obviously it comes to the point that it's only three people left and yeah. it, it escalated all this time already. But then it's clear those are three characters that are all of th all three of them are very interesting, very developed characters. And you know that only one can get out of there alive. And actually only one does. And that's the protagonist. Yeah. And he, uh, not for lack of trying to stop it, even at the very end, which I think is, um, is very telling about, uh, Song Gi-hun, the, the main character. We mentioned that he starts out as he's kind of a louse, you know, he has these gambling debts and he's not He's not very nice to his mother, who really takes care of him. Um, and he's a kind of a deadbeat father, but he loves his kid, and he's trying to... The thought of losing her is compelling him to participate in this game. And there are many points throughout the game where he, despite seemingly having an advantage for a number of reasons, um, he ha he still has his heart and he doesn't want to proceed with it, even up to the final moment when he tries to have he and his friend, uh, Song Wu, uh, leave the game together, alive. Yeah, which is just before then Song Wu uh, kills himself in order for him to win. So that's also a very selfless act eventually. I mean, he would have lost. He would have been, he would have been killed anyway, but he yeah. could have quit. He could have quit and everything would have gone back to how it was before, except for the fact that there are deeply traumatized. And I think that that trauma, that trauma mm. when Gi-hun comes out of the game, he's a rich man now, and still for one entire year, he goes on with his life in poverty. He doesn't even touch that price money. And he, even when he goes to this high profile banker that is like, you know, taking care of his, of his, of his winnings, mm. he borrows money from him just to get himself a beer and sit on the beach and be sad because he can't get over the fact of what he's done over that trauma, over that tremendous sensation of, well, guilt, maybe? I, I think so. I think um, certainly certainly a feeling that he... I, I think this is something that, that we've all felt when playing a game to a much lesser extent, which is even if you win... Like, imagine imagine a game that you're playing as a kid and your friend loses and you you are happy that you won but you also feel bad because they they're really upset that they lost and i think that take that to the nth degree <laughs> yeah where your friend dies and then your mother dies and you know the world still seems as bleak and depressing even more so than it was before you participated in this horribly traumatic experience I think um, there's something admirable in the way that he he doesn't touch the money because he feels like it's blood money, ill-gotten, and uh, he, he just sort of spirals until yeah. <laughs> something is revealed. 
Yeah, I mean, dying in a game is kind of being a spoil sport. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay, if there was ever if there was ever a a, a Hoisinger spoil sport, it's Songwu. <laughs> yeah, because he's like, oh come on, now now he killed himself. Yeah, it's like um, it's being being a spoil sport in the sense that the example that you gave, I find that really appealing and really interesting, really enlightening, also on on Squid Game. Because, mm. yeah, if you have someone, if you win, let's say you win a chess game against someone and that person gets really upset or really yeah. offended about it, then winning is no fun. For a game to be fun in real life now, you need to be, that's what it means to be a good loser, right? You congratulate right. and you're, you're happy for the person who won, even if they won against you. And maybe you try to understand why they won. I once had a really cool chat, chess game just a mm. couple of weeks ago with someone who, after I beat them at chess... Um, they went ahead and explained to me how I could have had a much easier time defeating their king, oh, and I found fun. that I found that I found that so cool because it's like you can take something away from it. You know, it's like a very a very fair game, and uh, it, it was just a great amount of fun. And you know that every, everyone's well and everything's fine. Obviously, that's not the case in Squid Game. Yeah, I find that kind of I find that kind of sad how someone come out comes out of such a such a tremendously traumatizing experience experience is rich but is has lost what made them so unique as a character which is the tremendous trust and faith in humanity and in being good and then you come out and you're rich you don't have any of the concerns that you had before but you're kind of a broken person because you've lost yeah. all faith in humanity there i think that's the that's the real tragedy of the show is that we see for nine hours, this character, how um, optimistic and uplifting and, and truly benevolent he is really at the end of the day. And I think that that all comes to a head in the final episode when, so I know we've announced that it's in spoilers, but really this is spo <laughs> spoiler number one, <laughs> if you, if you're going to watch squid game. So it's there's an old man character um in the game and he's the first person that uh song gihun meets and befriends and we see them form a really touching relationship throughout the game sort of a father-son relationship yeah and of course we know one of these people has to die and so when the game comes around where uh this old man and it comes down to the old man and song gihun they're playing marbles and ha ha pun of puns. The old man has lost his marbles. He's acting yeah. as if he's demented. And Song Gi-hun takes advantage of that. And it's only after the old man reveals that he was aware that he was taking advantage of him that he sort of says, but you're a good person. I understand why you did that. I will, I concede, take my marbles. I lose. And then we think he dies. However, he doesn't. It's revealed that this old man, who he he, re he reveals himself to be a man named uh, Oh Il Nam, he has been the mastermind of the entire Squid Game. And he says that he put it together for his ultra-rich friends to have something to do, but he also had an ulterior motive beyond that, which was he wanted to see if there was any goodness in people. Yeah. And Song Gi-hun kind of proves him wrong that there is inherent goodness in people at the end yeah. of the, and he, he kind of gets his heart back when he, he witnesses somebody selflessly save a homeless drunk person on the street. 
Yeah. Just before the old man dies, he acknowledges the fact that there is goodness in people, which is, I think, a very wonderful moment mm. because they have like a last wager going on and it could it would mean like win or lose everything. And obviously then the old man loses his life. Funnily enough, because before he was not, he was actually the only one who was playing throughout the entire game because he was never in yeah. any serious danger of being killed. All the others were, but for him it was clear all this time that if he loses, then they're just going to, you know, like fire shot in the air or something. I'm not quite sure how they would have done it, but he was not really fearing for his life because he was he overseeing the entire thing. Yes. There's a, um, so I, I didn't, uh, I didn't call the twist. I didn't I didn't get that exactly, but there was yeah. a moment in the show where I thought there's something going on with this old man. Do you know the moment mm. I'm talking about? I don't know which moment you're talking about. There's a moment where there's a riot um in the barracks. So about halfway through the games, uh one of the characters a gangster, I think his name is Doksu, mm. he um he kills somebody. And the, uh, the, the people who run the game don't do anything about it. So it's sort of implicitly revealed, you can kill people whenever you want and make the yeah. game easier for yourself. So that night, a riot breaks out in the barracks where they're all kept. And there's a moment where they're trying to find the old man and they can't find him. And they're looking around, they can't find him. And he has somehow gotten on the topmost bunk. So he's above everybody. And he's mm. begging them to stop. And it cuts to the overseer and he's, he sees him and he says, okay, stop it. And then he sends yeah. people in to go break up the riot. Yeah, I think so. I, I was at that moment really confused. I thought, mm. um, I, I wasn't quite sure whether it was because of the old man's begging, which by the way, broke my heart. Yeah. Um, or whether it was because um, the general idea was to stop it before everyone was killed because they wanted to continue the games. But wow, that episode with that ride that was so intense. Yes. Uh, that it's like they, they basically, uh, as soon as the first person gets killed, then it's like, okay, the special game starts now. All the, be the beds start like, you know, flipping so that everyone wakes up. And yeah. then the light flickers on and off all the time. And it's, it's a nightmare. Like, man, I was honestly, <laughs> I, was, I was having some dinner while that episode was playing and I had to stop eating. Yeah. Or, sorry, the other way around. I paused the show in order to finish eating because it was so intense that I couldn't. <laughs> I couldn't eat. I couldn't eat yeah. during because it was just so stressful. It's not like I'm not super sensitive to the to the explicit violence, which is pretty explicit in Squid Game. It's yeah. quite tough. It's not easy to watch. The show is quite violent, uh, but the fact that this constant, you know, like light switching on and off, and I think there's like a siren or some kind of like uncomfortable bass music playing over yeah. it. Wow, that was really that was really hard to watch, and at the same time, quite impressive. Well, and what I, I'm dying to ask you this question because O Il Nam, the old man, was my favorite character the entire time. Mm, yeah, mm. and I think that's not an uncommon opinion. And I I want to know what is your thought on the trick of the of the show making us love and identify with the the mastermind of the of the game in yeah. a way that i think when it was when when uh uh gihun is on the beach and he gets the card that says um well what was it from your genbu yeah um the term that that they had uh 
called each other during the marble game that basically means like best friend or pe people who share everything with one another. Um, my heart sank because I thought, oh no, they're about to reveal that he put all of this together. <laughs> it is an amazing twist. Yeah. I didn't, I didn't see it coming either. Only at that moment I realized, yeah. okay, so, so that's what's happening. Although I must say it, the golden rule of cinematography is that if you don't see the body, then there is a chance that the character might be alive. And That's he true. was the only one, when the players were killed, usually you see them getting shot, but he was the only one where you didn't see that. Kihun yeah. just turned away and walked away, and then you heard the gunshot, and it was like, okay. <laughs> so yeah. this means, just like when the detective is killed relatively at the end of his, uh, well, at the end of his story arc, uh, he gets shot in the chest and he falls down a cliff, and that to me indicates, well, I mean, most likely he's dead, but it's not entirely yeah. unlikely yeah. in the next season that suddenly, okay, so he, so he maybe ended up somewhere. Or there was a boat coming by and he was yeah. saved and so on. I, I could see him coming back and then Gihun and and this detective maybe, you know, trying to disassemble the game in the second season. I, I think, think this is a possibility. I think so, especially since um, they were uh, they were connected from the from the second episode onward where... Yeah. That detective, you know, called out Gihun as someone who I think he he was looking to question, and so there's definitely the possibility. But I I I just think that um, on the subject of of games, there are a lot of moments in the in the show that I think um, are either really um, biting commentary on how we play games and engage with them, or if you're a a game player and you love them there are certain moments where you you feel viscerally um emotional and the 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 one that got to me was with this old man this oil nam character when there the marble game is almost finished and he does that call out where he says uh is it almost as cruel as tricking me mm. using my my dementia to, to think that I had lost. And I think what got to me about that is, of course, that character is very lovely in that in the show up to that point. But also there is something about, oh, Gihun, I thought you would follow the rules the whole time, you know? Yeah. Or I thought you would you would have honor in kind of playing this game. He was disappointed and, and he yeah. was at the same time also understanding. And I think it is a very interesting twist, not only for the sake that it's uh, just something that at least for me came unexpectedly. Mm. But uh, it's also interesting that it has uh, something to say about the way that we, as you said, enjoy games, play games, but also enjoy the show itself. Mm. Because there is an entire level that we haven't touched upon because it would have been too spoilery for, for the main story section, where VIPs are being brought in relatively at the end, like at the, I think, penultimate episode or something, that just watch the game. Yeah. And... Uh, they they bet on the different players and they're kind of rooting for them, but they're very detached. They're very dehumanizing them. They themselves wear animal masks, mm. these, these VIPs, so they are also dehumanized, just like everyone else is in the show. And uh, except for the detective, by the way, who constantly, you know, uh, switches back and forth. Yeah. But um, I found it very interesting because I felt as if they were making an implicit point about the fact that I am watching this show too. Yes. I am watching this show just like these VIPs are watching the show. And while I might not be betting money 
on these players, I am rooting for certain players more than I am for others, or for certain characters more than I am for others. Like Ali. Uh, was that the name? Yeah, poor Ali. Ali. Yeah. He was he's like really he's not the smartest guy, he's not the strongest player, but he's so good at heart. Yeah. And so trustworthy, so reliable, so human that it's truly painful when you see him getting screwed over by another character that is also like Sangwoo who's also kind of a super interesting character. I also really liked him until the point obviously where he turned increasingly dangerous and violent. There's a there's a moment um I mentioned that that YouTube video that I watched um and the the actor who played Sangwoo was talking about how the way that he viewed this character was he wanted it to be you know you you were with him until you weren't but if you mm. were to go back and watch it you would notice oh he was never really a good person no. and there's a moment with between he and Ali that sort of sets up their their relationship where they've both left the game Ali has no money and he's about to walk across town to get home and we know that Song Wu also has no money he's in debt and in legal trouble for billions of won and he insists that Ali take 10,000 won to take the bus home and the actor was talking about how he saw that moment as even though Song Wu is in more debt than Ali is, this implicit egotism of maintaining the class structure, that mm. he he is still above this immigrant. And his his benevolence to give him money for the bus is something that at first glance seems very nice, but is a little more insidious when you think about it. And I think that through line persists throughout the entire show. Yeah, it's never entirely revealed what he did in order to get in so much debt, but it's definitely commented on briefly that he's done some like big business illegal trading. He also has an arrest warrant on his head, so he's on a different level than uh, Gi-hoon, for example, who just more or less just like, you know, got into a bad spot. But he, Sang-woo, as tragic as his arc is, like he also has does it has a suicide attempt before he rejoins the game and this is like he's genuinely suffering yeah. but he has also done some pretty atrocious things that in the way that i imagined it bring him a little bit closer to dok sun the gang leader yes than gi hoon i think what's what's interesting to me about uh that comparison you just made is that you're right we don't know exactly what song woo did but he mentions that it's it sounds like he was basically playing the stock market like he was, um, uh, there was something, there's a joke about futures in one episode mm. where he's trying yeah. to explain it to Gihun and he doesn't understand. So I think at the heart of that though, what that says to me is that Sangwoo is a cheater mm. and he is because we see him, he gets knowledge of the, uh, the Dalgana game, the, um, licking the sugar, that game, honeycomb uh, game, the honeycomb mm. game. Yeah. And he does, he doesn't tell anyone. He actually keeps it to himself when he thinks it's going to be an advantage. So there is sort of a um, a uh, a streak in him that is bending the rules. And at least Dok Su is pretty straightforward about how he doesn't care about the rules. That, that is true because it is so amazing because I actually wanted Sang, Sang Hu for a long time to be a good character mm. because he's so charming. He's very smart. He's a very strong team player in the sense that he does 
contribute significantly to the progress of the team. But as mm. soon as they are not a team anymore, as soon as he's got something to gain for himself, then he will not gladly at the beginning i think he struggles when he sees that gihun picks the umbrella which is much yeah. harder to to do than a triangle for example um he struggles with himself of whether he should tell him or not and he makes a choice i think this is the point where he makes the choice of saying okay i'm gonna fight for myself and if gihun dies during this game because he's got to do this umbrella shape which is so hard to do then that's not on me you know i yeah. think he reveals his personality in, at that moment. I find that super interesting and, and, and very strong. Yes. And it also speaks to the strength of Gihun, I think, too, because he, he's not stupid. He, under, he, he plays back that moment in his head, and you can tell. It's not said, but it's, it's great show-don't-tell cinematography where you can tell that the gears are turning in Gihun's head where he says, Songwoo knew what we were doing and he didn't tell me. He didn't stop me from going to the umbrella. But he doesn't hold it against him. He, I think he rationalizes maybe that, well, <laughs> it's a life and death game. So I hope that doesn't happen again, but I'm not, <laughs> I'm not going to call him out for it. Yeah, or maybe he did genuinely not know. I mean, maybe. Uh, I think he, Gi-hoon has so much faith in people and relies on people. One of the iconic sentences of this show, I'm... It might be that I'm misquoting it, but it's like, uh, you don't trust in people because they are trustworthy, but because oh. there's no other choice or something like that, you know? Yeah. And I think that's the principle that he goes by. He just trusts in people and he believes in people um, no matter what, basically, uh, because yeah. that's the only way for him to, to, uh, to do anything, really. But I've got, like, there are two things that I definitely want to address very briefly. Yes, yes. One thing is, I think I might have to correct myself on the old man on Oh Il-Nam, because I said before that he is the only one who's playing because he's in no real danger of dying, but mm. it might be that this is simply a loophole, like a narrative loophole that was not properly uh, properly illustrated. But the thing is, there were actually... I mean, first of all, he is actually suffering. I could believe that he is actually scared in that night where every, a lot of players get killed, where the yeah. violence breaks out, because he can't physically defend himself. He also is gets sick uh, throughout the, the game and urinates himself, which is very humiliating. I'm sure that this was not something that he, you know, intended or that was just playing for him. He didn't act uh, like that. And they also played games such as the Honeycomb game where he would have or probably would have been shot and the tug of war, the tug of war game where he actually was the one who made the team win, even though they yeah. had lower strength. He gave them a very impressive strategy. My goodness, that's really amazing to watch when these, when these two teams are playing tug of war. Yeah. But if they would have lost, then he would have plummeted down that tower with everyone else because he was chained to that rope as well. So I think he actually risked everything probably with the genuine idea of, I have a tumor in my head, I'm going to die anyway. And now the biggest enjoyment that I could have is playing this game. Mm. I think I think that's probably right because I think the only person who really knew about his involvement was the overseer with the different mask. Because mm. it it didn't at least it wasn't conveyed explicitly that the um the other masked uh you know the workers that they knew who he was. I think to the to them he was just another player. Um but uh, we it is revealed that the overseer knows who Oil Nam is, so I think you're right. I think that there are plenty of times where he may have actually been in 
actual peril. It is a bit interesting because the more I think about it, the more contradictory it gets because there is a sequence mm. where I said where he gets sick and where he urinates himself and there a soldier, a triangled uh, ant worker basically, yeah. threatens threatens the old man and says like get mm. up and threatens to shoot him and it is only with the help of Gihun that he can actually get up. Um, however, in the marble game when he loses and we think he gets shot, the worker... Oh, right. The soldier must have known that he's a special kind of person and that he's not going to shoot that that dude. So I think there are probably the closer you look, the more you can find a little bit of, you know, like contradictions. Yeah. But that's just how plot twists are. They work for the first time when you watch it, they work very well. And if you were to rewatch it, you'd be like, wait, but this does not really <laughs> add up just now. <laughs> it's uh, it's not following the rules of the twist. <laughs> it doesn't no. all line up. I do find it amazing that um, Gi-hoon turns around at the very end of the show, accepts the prize money, and wants to become a new person. He helps other people out. He has his faith in humanity restored by basically having that last moment with the old man. Um, he dyes his hair bright red and <laughs> uh, basically undergoes a transformation. He becomes a different person that is at the same time his old self. However... I struggle with the idea of a second season. I I do, like, at the very end of the show, he has this idea he's going to fly to presumably the US to see his daughter. And just before he enters that, he sees another person getting involved in the squid game and he calls up the number and he wants to participate and it's clear that he wants to get revenge. So what we're going to see in the second season, and I think, I, I fear there might be a second season, yeah? Yeah, um, well, is it's that so popular. We'll see a, yeah, we'll see a revenge arc. And I'm not sure whether this will have the same appeal and the same narrative strength that the first season had. So I think they might be making a mistake there because currently they're riding on the wave of tremendous success with this. Yes. But whether the people will stick around to come back in one year and watch Squid Game Season 2 where, you know, the uh, Gihun with his red hair and the detective who was believed to be dead but somehow turns out to be alive yeah. basically disassemble that facility. I'm not so sure whether that's a good idea. I I will say so I I largely agree with you. I think that um for me I was thinking about it this morning before we recorded. Um because I I was just I'm still thinking about the show and something stuck out to me with that end scene where I think the the initial feeling that you're meant to have is that he's yes, he's going to go and oh, he's he's doing the right thing. He's going to go get revenge and dismantle this game. But then I thought the setup of that scene is exactly the same as the first scene where he goes to the horse track. He is mm. going to, in, in the opening of the first episode, he is meant to go and see his daughter and have a nice dinner with her, but he chooses instead to go to the horse track and bet a bunch of money. He loses it to his creditors, uh, to his, his creditors, and then he uh, ends up taking his daughter to basically like a junk food dinner. And all I was thinking about was at the end of the show, he's about to go see his daughter and he decides, no, I'm going to get in touch with this, uh, the people of this game. And it, it made my heart sink a little bit to think, okay, I would like to believe that this is a pure motive for let's, let's stop this horrible thing from happening. But part of me wonders, is it just his gambling coming back? And I, his gambling, I, yeah, yeah, potentially, and it's also the fact that he can't fight the 
class disparity in the sense that he would like. Uh, because the mm. thing is that um, the, the show so strongly relies on pretty um, precisely commenting on that, um, you know, socio-economic crisis. And it would just make no sense if uh, those two would just, you know, get rid of that game and then it's a happy ending. That yeah. won't work. So I think... I don't think so. I think, yeah, I think they they made, a, in my mind, like, I think they made a bit of a mistake in making that ending so clear a cliffhanger for a season two. I think it would have sufficed if he was on his way to the airport. Um and looking maybe at that Squid Game card, where yeah. you could technically call again, make that the end, and then Even you ambiguous. can still say, "Yeah, you can say it's ambiguous. That's it for the for for the story of Squid Game." Or if you have a really good idea, you can still pick it up as a second season. But now it's very clear he stormed off from that airport. He's gonna he's gonna try to fight the people who organized this game, which eventually does not really abolish the actual problem, which is the class disparity. So stay tuned for Squid Game New Game Plus, where he, who yeah. knows he knows all the tricks and he's going to fight all the bosses, knowing all their weaknesses. <laughs> yeah, I, I imagine it to be like you know an anime character with his red hair, you know, and yeah, like it's gonna be like a Tarantino show, basically. <laughs> he comes in uh, Gihun Unchained or something like that. <laughs> oh. Okay, well uh, that's it for our spoiler part. On Squid Game, we hope that you enjoyed this and then uh, we'll talk again next week.